Marketing success comes from identifying the right opportunities. And sponsoring the Up Next in Commerce podcast might just be the best opportunity you'll hear about today. With tens of thousands of listeners, expert creative, production, and strategic promotion teams at the helm, not to mention millions of impressions at the ready, this is a growth opportunity you should not ignore. Email me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with the Up Next in Commerce team. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of Mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. We all know that potent e-commerce strategies are essential for just about every business these days. But can they overshadow other important business elements? Felipe Zardo brings a wealth of retail, e-commerce, and marketing experience to this question and many others. Some of his past experiences includes working in leadership positions at brands like Nike and Gap. Felipe is currently the SVP of digital at Five Below. And he joined me on today's episode of Up Next in Commerce to talk all about how the company is creating magical in-store experiences while still keeping digital experiences and supply chain and logistics strategies top of mind. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning at business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Felipe, welcome to the show. Hey, Stephanie. Good to be here. So I would love to start this episode off with hearing a bit about where you picked up all these languages from. I was looking at your LinkedIn and it said you knew a couple languages, but also that you're from California. So I was like, I want to know how that started and how you acquired these. Yeah, I've been at somewhat of a nomad in my career. So I've moved around quite a bit, but growing up, uh, I spoke Portuguese at home. My parents are from Brazil. I was actually born in Brazil. I moved to the US as a little kid. And just once you kind of have that second language, the third and the fourth kind of become easier and easier to, to pick up. And so uh, over the years, I've managed to kind of put a couple more in my in my arsenal through my travels. I like that. And Dutch is one of them, right? Dutch is one of them. It's probably one of the hardest languages to learn. Uh, I lived in Amsterdam for two and a half years and the Dutch speak impeccable English. Uh, but if you really want to try, they will humor you uh, and work with you to kind of learn some Dutch. So yeah, I uh, managed to pick a little bit of that up when I was out in Amsterdam. I like it. Okay. So what's one good Dutch word that I should learn today? Uh, Hazella. Hazella. Yeah. What's that mean? There's really no literal translation, but it's a feeling of warmth mm-hmm. uh, when you're around friends and family. Hazella. I love that. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Walk away with one good thing today. If that's it, I'm happy with it. 
So I would love to dive through your background a bit. You've worked at some pretty amazing places, Nike, Gap. I want to hear how you got into this world. Yeah, kind of almost fell into it. Growing up, I always worked retail. So it's like in high school, had the retail jobs. Um, and then when I graduated from college, had a brief stint working in the semiconductor industry and quickly figured out that that wasn't for me. Uh, and had a classmate from my university who was working at the Gap. And so I reached out and she kindly kind of put my resume in there and they took a chance on me. And that was the start of it. And everything just kind of clicked and it made sense once I started kind of working there and spent you know almost 10 years at the Gap, which I always tell people is like getting a retail MBA, the company is so big uh, and diverse. Just an amazing kind of experience for me very early in my career, being able to kind of do a lot of different things and, and work with you know very, very different brands between Gap, Old Navy, and Banana Republic. Wow, cool. Okay, so then after Gap, where did you hop to next? Then I jumped over to Nike and spent almost five years at Nike, both domestically and internationally. Uh, that's what took me out to Amsterdam. So I was out there for two and a half years running digital commerce operations. I was the GM for Nike.com in Brazil in the run-up to the Olympics, which was an amazing experience. And also worked at the headquarters in Beaverton overseeing the launch business. Well, okay. What were you doing around the Olympics? Like, what did that look like behind the scenes? What projects were you leading? Why was it so amazing? It's like the circus coming into town in both the best and the worst ways. Uh, And so it's just incredibly dynamic time, lots of brand activations. And so overseeing the digital channel, we're just doing lots of really interesting things from a consumer connection perspective. The craziest thing that we had had kind of planned was we're going to float this installation in the middle of the harbor in Rio and just have an amazing kind of brand house and quickly figured out that the Brazilian Navy was not too kind about us just floating something in the water without the appropriate permits. And so we had to kind of pivot at the last minute, mm-hmm. but typical things that you're working like for a big company that wants to make a big splash that you just have to kind of roll with it and, and deal with. Yeah. So what did you all end up doing instead of the float? We did containers instead. So we had shipping containers that we uh, repurposed and kind of transformed them into a, a pretty crazy experience and had this huge LED matrix that kind of circled the top of the installation. So if anybody was in Rio and kind of saw that, I was one of the contributors to, to that project. That's cool. So when developing like big, splashy projects like that, when looking back on them, how would you go about not only ideating them, but also like measuring performance of something that big? Performance is tough for, for things like that. Just in terms of kind of the delivery of the project, timelines are always kind of super tight and just being really sharp about you know, what matters and what's superfluous. And that kind of got drilled into me early on in my career when I was at the Gap in a product management role. And so just kind of deep, deep understanding of like, hey, where are we going to actually extract the value? What matters from a customer experience perspective? And just being maniacal about staying focused on that so you don't get sidetracked by all of the other amazing ideas that are kind of floating in the ether, Mm -hmm. um, specifically when it's something that big for the brand. You know, the measurement stuff, usually you want to be a little more empirical just in terms of number of people that you're impacting, brand reach. But for something like that, it was just basically having a cool party and having a, a great installation for the brand. I love that. That's interesting hearing about the lessons that you picked up while you were at Gap. Are there any others that resonate with you and stick with you today from either Gap or Nike or other places you've been? Yeah, I, I think there's there's this interesting kind of juxtaposition of my time at the Gap and and at Nike. You know, the Gap was, you know, the brand wasn't in, in the best shape while I was there. And so we just had to be very efficient operators of the business. And so being really good about understanding the business kind of top to bottom and the levers that you needed to pull to impact sales and profitability and just being really sharp and smart about when and why you were pulling those levers. That was just a great, just kind of crucible to be in. 
And then at Nike, you kind of have the opposite, which is, you know, Nike's a brand and sometimes they're doing things to protect the brand and they may not make the most commercial sense uh, right away, but there's a method to the madness. And I think for me, I've had the pleasure of kind of seeing both sides and being able to kind of strike that right balance between the two. I think it's an interesting, you know, paradox that, you know, brands have to kind of manage these days to, you know, figure out, well, how much brand building are you doing versus how much are you just, you know, mining the till? And there's no right answer for that. And it's just a tension that just needs to be kind of managed and thought about pretty consistently. Yeah, it seems like the world that we're in today, you definitely need both of those hats to put on, depending on, I mean, with the economy and everything that's going on, figuring out how much should we put towards brand building? How much should we, you know, be looking at those different levers and what should we invest in and ROI? And so it seems like you have a perfect mix to bring you to where you are today at five below. So what drew you to five below and what are you doing there? Yeah, so Five Below, it's a really high growth retailer, uh, super successful in the brick and mortar space. And you know, when I was kind of going through the interview process, I had a chance to speak to the leadership team, um, and they just saw an opportunity, just given the tween and teen customers that we really kind of covet and target, to really amp up the kind of holistic digital experience that the brand was providing to them. So we have an amazing physical brick and mortar presence across 1,200 stores but they're not in the stores all the time. And so how do we extend the brand digitally to customers and whether that's through commerce, marketing, or experiences. Um, It just felt like a pretty great opportunity for me where I was in my career to kind of take on the challenge and and help the brand out. That's great. So in your previous roles, you were very focused on digital. And this one, it seems like you're more focused on, like you said, brand building, all these retail locations. That's a very different concept than I'll say most of the guests who've come on who are like, everything's e-commerce going forward. Some people even went as far as saying retail's dead, which I don't agree with, but some people feel strongly about that. So what does your day-to-day look like trying to build this brand and lean into all these retail locations? Yeah, I think for where we've seen the most success in my career is when we've put the customer at the center and then we just kind of get out of the way. And so omni-channel is like this overused term, but for me, it's just about convenience and flexibility for the customer. And some days getting something delivered within an hour through Instacart or Postmates or one of those services is what you need because it's raining outside and you don't want to go out and the kids are going crazy and you just need a fun activity to kind of keep them entertained for a couple of hours. And other times you just want to be out and about, you want to physically kind of touch the product. And so um, I think everything that we do just from a road mapping perspective, like we try to ignore some of the internal kind of politics and you know, roles and responsibilities and reporting lines as much as we can. Um, and really kind of put the consumer at the center of the decision-making and the experience that we're trying to kind of drive with the brand. And so it's kind of like an LTV play that it doesn't matter, you know, on any given day where they're shopping with us, as long as they're shopping with us, like we're going to win in the long term. Mm -hmm. How do you learn about your customers to figure out, you know, where they want to shop with you at? I mean, were you doing surveys? Like, yeah, what led you to focus on the areas that you're focusing on? Yeah, so a combination, we like to blend uh, kind of three different pillars. So we have our, our behavioral data that we'll collect via surveys. Uh, we have our transactional data. So we're kind of tokenizing all of our purchases. And we can kind of then uh, dedupe that and kind of rationalize that into an individual consumer. And then we also have some attitudinal data that we collect. And then we kind of blend that with broader kind of data from NPD and other sources just to kind of figure out what the consumer's head's at. We kind of put that all into the blender. And then what comes out is hopefully an aligned strategy that makes sense for the brand. Yeah. Were there any surprises as you were going about kind of merging all those data sets and trying to find insights? Was there anything that was maybe surprising, especially to leadership 
that you actually were still able to go forward with a strategy that might feel a bit different than how you were originally going? Yeah, I think for us, what really kind of came out is there are lots of correlations between the attitudinal data and the kind of behavioral or transactional data. But people are really bad about recalling how frequently they came, how much they're shopping. And so um, historically, that had been our primary kind of mode of collecting consumer research and understanding you know, how frequently consumers were engaging with us. And very, very quickly, we figured out that that wasn't the case. And so that was kind of the big eye opener, I think, for leadership is just, you know, you can't overly rely on one singular source of data. And it is about kind of getting that 360 view and kind of blending all that out because the truth is somewhere kind of in the middle of those those three buckets. Yeah. I mean, you were to ask me what I ate for lunch yesterday. I don't know if I could actually tell you. And if you were to ask me how many times I shopped at your store in the past month, it'd be inaccurate just based off of memory. And I'm sure most people probably underestimate how much they're spending somewhere and where they're shopping at, how many times. I know I at least would if I was answering a survey. It varies. I think at at times people are kind of giving you the answers that they think you want to hear. And Uh, so I think it kind of skews both ways. And so, you know, for us, just having that transactional data and in a pure play digital world, that's super easy. Everything's tracked in, you know, Adobe or Google Analytics and you have everything at your fingertips. On the brick and mortar side, it's a little more complicated than for us with 1,200 stores plus digital kind of blending all that together and creating that composite spin. Um, a lot of the work that we've been doing here over the last year or so is just kind of churning through all that data and really kind of creating some personas that we think are, are really representative of who our customer base is. Yeah. When it comes to like the retail experience, what does Five Below do to make it so magical? I mean, I was reading about some of the things they do behind the scenes when it comes to shipping in products and not having them packaged and how they build out the store. And it seems like there's a lot going on that I don't think many people know, like how the store is actually built. So what are maybe the magical elements that you see around Five Below and the way they you know, build out the aisles and even bring products in? Yeah, our, our merchants and buyers are just amazing trend spotters. And they have great vendor relationships that allow us to kind of identify these trends and then just really distort the value proposition for our customers. So most of the products that we have both online and in-store are $5 or below, hence the name of the brand. And we categorize them across eight different worlds. And so that gives us just a broad palette uh, in which to play in. And so it doesn't have to be a tech trend one year and then we're doing great and all of a sudden it migrates to like a health and wellness trend and we can't play in it because of that diversity that we have in our assortment. It really allows us to balance the portfolio out and just really kind of continue to spot trends uh, wherever they might be coming in. But I think the beauty of the, the concept and the beauty of the brand is we like to call ourselves the yes store that, you know, a parent or grandparent can bring somebody in and the kid's always asking somebody for something that they pick up off the shelf. And because the prices are so uh, affordable, it's very easy for you to say yes. And I know myself as a parent, I love kind of going in and for, you know, 15 or $20, you come out looking like a rock star and your kids are just incredibly happy because they have three or four things that they can show their friends. Yeah. I agree on that. Definitely makes it for a much easier experience than going into a high-end toy store and then picking out like a $50 truck in my case, maybe like, uh, that's a hard no. That is yeah. way outside of your $5 Easter budget that you got from the Easter bunny. <laughs> So what about managing inventory? I mean, with so many pieces that you read right now about all the stores kind of struggling with like too much inventory, kind of got them in trouble. How does Five Below think about keeping track of that in a way where they don't have too much? 
great question. Inventory management is probably one of the critical kind of focus areas for us for, for obvious reasons, um, not just from an inventory, but just given the amount of volume that we need to push through, even capacity. Um, when we had the port delays out here on the West Coast, just kind of figuring out what was kind of stuck where, like for us, it was really impactful. And so there's just a lot of forecasting kind of planning discipline that we have as a company to kind of just understand what's coming in. The good thing is that the product tends to be not super perishable. We do have Easter and we do have some of these um, other Hallmark holidays that we participate in, but it's a smaller percentage of our total sales. And so we're able to kind of manage just a little bit of the perishability of the inventory that way. But just from a forecasting perspective, the teams are looking at that stuff on a weekly basis and just making sure that we have just the right amount. And that's really, really hard. And we're just gotten really good at that over the years. Yeah. After all those delays, were there any shifts that you made? When it came to the, like the supply chain or where you're ordering things from, or was that kind of like a one-time blip that you're like, uh, you know, keep going on as we always have? Um, I would say that the biggest shift for us actually came prior to the pandemic with the kind of tariff wars uh, with China. That really kind of forced us to diversify our supply base away from China. And since then, since we're growing so rapidly, quite frankly, it's just been a, more about securing capacity. And so for us, it's been about finding the right partners in the logistics space and signing kind of longer term deals that guarantee a certain amount of capacity for the brand that allows us to make sure that we have room on containers and ships uh, and airplanes uh, on occasion to kind of get the stuff over here to the U.S. Mm -hmm. The one thing I was like thinking a bit about is when you start offering that same day delivery of lower price items, is there any worry where it starts to feel like you're competing with Amazon in a way and that you have to kind of like keep up with them? Or do you feel like there's so much brand love to five below that you don't really have to worry about your customers kind of being like, oh, I'll just hop over to Amazon and get this cheap thing? Um, I think everybody's competing with Amazon, whether they want to admit it or, or not. You know, 50% of all searches, I think if it's not more than that these days, kind of start on Amazon when people are looking for product. So I think it's inevitable that they're going to be in the consumer's headspace. I think for us, the differentiation is that merchandising point of view that we have. And so we don't have everything. We have what we believe is a curated assortment of the best things that really kind of strike that right value and distorted value proposition for the consumer. And so for us, uh, it being also a safe space where you know we're not dealing with products that you might not want your kids kind of exposed to. It's an easy place for, for me to kind of put my five-year-old in front of an iPad and just have her kind of like scroll and pick out a couple of things that she wants. And so I think there's just a little bit just in terms of the brain has positioned itself from you know purity of concept and really understanding where our core customers are that allows that merchandising uh, framework just to be really, really sharp. And I think that's what's really kind of differentiating us. On the service side, we're not going to out Amazon, Amazon. And so for us, I think we need to be credible and be somewhat consistent with where the marketplace is, but we don't necessarily have to be the fastest or the cheapest. Mm -hmm. Got it. Was there any trickiness involved when trying to offer that same day delivery? Just because I'm sure the margins are already pretty like tight on lower priced items. And we've had a few guests come on. Um, one was like the CEO of Fast AF and his whole thing was, you know, you can't afford to do this unless you have more premium products. But obviously you can if you use a partner. So mm -hmm. what did that look like when strategizing? Like, should we offer same day and how do we make this work financially? Yeah, at first it was quite frankly a defensive tactic. And so we signed the partnership kind of during the pandemic when everybody's worried about at the time a second wave. Um, and so nobody knew what was going to happen kind of during the holiday season. And so we wanted to make sure that we had a little bit of a backstop in case our stores were, uh, were shut down again to continue to provide access to the brand to, to consumers. On the financial side, for us, 
I think the relationships that we have with Instacart was was great. Like we're able to do it in a way that's still more profitable than other fulfillment methods that we have within our arsenal. And for us, it also allowed us to kind of get on this journey and this roadmap, which will kind of culminate here in a couple of weeks, which is exposing all of the store inventory to our various different systems, which then allows us to do things like curbside and ship from store, which for us is a strategic imperative. Just like if you can take 100% of the fulfillment equation out of it from a cost perspective and um, have the consumer come and pick it up, obviously that's the, the most impactful thing that you can have from a P&L perspective on a fulfillment side. And so it was kind of the first step on this multi-pronged journey that we had kind of laid out. And then I think the other piece is, you know, when you think about the economics, like any singular order might be profitable, might not be profitable. But again, if you're creating that longer term relationship with the consumer, we believe that net net um, at the end of the day, we're still going to be better off if they're coming to us versus coming to Amazon or going to Target or Walmart or any of the other choices that a consumer might have in front of them. And so again, going back to that convenience and really putting the consumer at the center of everything that we're doing and allowing them to kind of make the choice that's best for them on that particular occasion for us just made economic sense in the long term. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. How are you all thinking about pulling a customer back to keep them, you know, a long-term customer? I mean, what ways are you engaging with them? Because I think about smaller priced items sometimes and when I need it, I need it for maybe, you know, like I said, if we're with our kids and we're like, let's go shopping quickly or let's grab something for a birthday party, but you don't always have it, at least I don't top of mind to maybe go and like find some lower price fun items to make a better day. So how do you, like what ways are you reaching out to your customers to keep them coming back and wanting to explore all the inventory that you're about to show them? Yeah, um, that's probably the, the biggest kind of challenge that we have. And for us, just I get tying into that transactional data and understand how frequently people are coming in and be able to create those personas. Uh, we just launched the CDP. And so we have all of these tools that are now just coming online that will allow us to kind of just understand the different behavior patterns that we're seeing for, for customers. And then it's about, you know, right message with the right product at the right place at the right time. I think the value proposition kind of just sells itself. I think for us, it's just really kind of understanding who these consumers are and like what we should be putting in front of them at what period of time. And one of the things that we've been kind of talking about is just celebrating the moments of life and growing up. For me, you know, my son plays soccer and, you know, if he had a good game or if he had a bad game, we would go for an ice cream sundae or, or some special treat just to kind of recognize the effort that he was putting in on the field. And very easily, that could also be a trip to five below where he can kind of pick up a new activity book or a ball or something else. And so, that's one of the things um, from a digital experience perspective on the marketing side, we're really trying to kind of dial up in terms of just creating this connectivity of Five Below and these different little micro moments that happen every single day and just keeping Five Below top of mind as a place that you can come to, to either kind of cheer up or reward a child based upon what's happening in their life. Oh, that's awesome. So what else is coming out in a couple of weeks? Yeah, so we'll have uh, buy online pickup and store rolled out chain-wide hopefully by the time that the episode uh, comes out, if not shortly thereafter. And that was something that we announced at our analyst day earlier in the year. 
And like I said, that's been kind of like a multi-year journey for us, just given with the brand had been investing, had been primarily on the brick and mortar sites. All the systems were just focused on servicing a singular channel. And as I've come in, we've made a lot of strategic investments in kind of technology, people, and processes. And we're really kind of like at the cusp of unlocking a true omni-channel experience for our customers, which I'm super excited about. And then beyond that, there's lots of stuff, kind of digital footprint that we're talking about. How do we take some of those in-store experiences and begin to kind of digitize them in a way that creates a much more exciting and inviting space for customers when they want to interact with us. How are you thinking about digitizing the in-store experience? What is that going to look like? Something as silly as uh, you, you're coming into the store and we have music playing in all of our stores. You know, wouldn't it be fun if you could actually open up the app and you could upvote or downvote the playlist and figure out what song's coming up next? There's a trend I don't know if you're familiar with called Squishmallows. So the, these soft little cuddly things, they're different characters. People go insane over them. It's it's a legit craze. I might know what this is. I think my kids have. Oh, yeah, my. Yes, I know what they are. <laughs> you know, people are lining up outside of the store, uh, waiting for the store to open or queuing up virtually kind of online, waiting for the stuff to drop. And so how can we do some things during that period of time that, you know, whether it's trivia games, surveys, things like that, that, again, allow the consumer to kind of further interact and deepen their connection with the brand that you know, maybe feels a little bit kind of outside of the realm of just like selling things. And that's, you know, most of my roles in the past have been like commerce, commerce, commerce. And here we're trying to really kind of strike that right balance and create a deeper connection with the consumer. Because I think to your earlier comment, there's a ton of choice out there. And we want to make sure that Five Below is the top of mind brand and not the second or third one that comes to mind when they need something. Yeah. It seems like you all are also perfectly positioned to drum up kind of like a wait list for things or like you said people lining up outside the door to get these squish mellows but i mean have you thought about like how to drum up interest in a way that you know people will line up for a six dollar item like that because i feel like that could be a lot of buzz in of itself just seeing people line up out of a five below for you know one product yeah we do and Historically, the the holiday periods when we've had these like incredibly disruptive products, and you know what we also announced during our investor day is the addition of this ninth world, and so we have a section of the store that we're calling Five Beyond, and so that's allowed us to kind of do a couple of things. One is like break the five dollar price point, but two is just bring in like incredibly distorted value to customers, and so. Two Christmases ago, we had a drone for $15. We had you know, a massage gun for 15 bucks. We had hard-sided luggage this year for $20. That's great. And so just having these really, really unique items and again, kind of utilizing those as, okay, how do you get early access to those? Or is there an exclusive tier of access that you know, if you've downloaded the app and done certain things with us from a, an engagement perspective that would unlock the ability for you to interact? Those are things that we've been kind of talking about internally. Super fun. So when going through this, digital transformation in the past couple years, what would maybe be one lesson or piece of advice you would give to, you know, someone else who is about to lead their company through the same thing? Like it could be maybe with installing or thinking about technology. It can be about team. Like what's one lesson that comes to you though, that maybe you would do a bit differently or you thought you did a great job with it? I would say just, you know, in in general, uh, it's the old adage, like communicate, 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 and then communicate some more. You know, I think specifically in the digital space, everybody's got their own mental model of, you know, what the North Star needs to look like and just getting everybody on the same page and why you're focusing on certain things and not others and providing updates on the progress that you're making against that journey and just being diligent about providing those updates is critical. Everybody's got 
day jobs and frequently you need somebody to kind of lean in and do something a little extra to kind of get that project over the hump and just making sure that they're continuously just reminded of the importance that that particular initiative or that effort is going to have to the greater good is just super important. And that's just in my career been something that's made sometimes a difference between success or failure for, for initiatives. So I think that's the one kind of key piece of advice is you can have the greatest idea, but if people aren't bought in and if they're not, you know, pulling in the same direction that you are, it's going to be way, way harder than, than what you can imagine. Yep. I love that. All right. My last thing I want to ask is what is one big bet after that launch happens and it rolls out super smoothly and you get all the accolades and everything. What's the next maybe big bet that you and your team are thinking about or looking at right now that you want to explore? For us, it's loyalty. And what does that look like? For us, I think it's really unique because, you know, our muse is the teen and tween. Frequently, the person on the other side of the transaction is a parent or an uncle or a grandparent. And so how do we create a program that is exciting and engaging for the muse while still providing some value for the person actually pulling the strings on on the purchase? And so that's the one thing that my team and I are really going to be spending a lot of time here over the summer, kind of beginning to map out. And for us, we've, again, drew a a line in the sand and said by 2024, it's going to be live. And so we have basically a year to figure out what we're going to go do, which is exciting and scary at the same time. So that's that's the big thing for us um, here internally. That's great. When you crack that, you'll have to come back because I know a lot of people (laughs) are trying to figure that piece out as well right now. You see the big divide between what the younger generation is doing and wanting to buy versus what the parents even understand what they're doing and you know, to figure out how to engage both will be a great problem to solve. So we'll have to bring you back. We'd love to. All right, Felipe. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Where can people find out more about Five Below and what you're up to? Uh, they can check us out online at fivebelow.com. We're on you know, every single social media platform that there is and 1200 stores. And there's probably one right around the corner. So if you haven't been inside, take a look. My guess is it's going to surprise you in a positive way in terms of what we have to offer. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.